Chapter 18 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 18 The Perils of the Soul. 1. The Soul as Mannequin. The foregoing examples have taught us that the office of a sacred king or priest is often hedged in by a series of burdensome restrictions or taboos of which a principal purpose appears to be to preserve the life of the divine man for the good of his people. But if the object of the taboos is to save his life, the question arises, how is their observance supposed to affect this end? To understand this, we must know the nature of the danger which threatens the king's life, and which it is the intention of these curious restrictions to guard against. We must therefore ask, what does early man understand by death? To what causes does he attribute it? And how does he think it may be guarded against? As the savage commonly explains the processes of inanimate nature by supposing that they are produced by living beings working in or behind the phenomena, so he explains the phenomena of life itself. If an animal lives and moves, it can only be, he thinks, because there is a little animal inside which moves it. If a man lives and moves, it can only be because he has a little man or animal inside who moves him. The animal inside the animal, the man inside the man, is the soul, and as the activity of an animal or man is explained by the presence of the soul, so the repose of sleep or death is explained by its absence, sleep or trance being the temporary, death being the permanent absence of the soul. Hence, if death be the permanent absence of the soul, the way to guard against it is either to prevent the soul from leaving the body, or, if it does depart, to ensure that it shall return. The precautions adopted by savages to secure one or other of these ends take the form of certain prohibitions or taboos, which are nothing but rules intended to ensure either the continued presence or the return of the soul. In short, they are life-preservers or life-guards. These general statements will now be illustrated by examples. Addressing some Australian blacks, a European missionary said, I am not one as you think, but two. Upon this they laughed. You may laugh as much as you like, continued the missionary. I tell you that I am two in one. This great body that you see is one. Within that there is another little one which is not visible. The great body dies and is buried, but the little body flies away when the great one dies. To this some of the blacks replied, Yes, yes, we also are two, we also have a little body within the breast. On being asked where the little body went after death, some said it went behind the bush, others said it went into the sea, and some said they did not know. The Hurons thought that the soul had a head and body, arms and legs. In short, that it was a complete little model of the man himself. The Eskimo believed that, the soul exhibits the same shape as the body it belongs to, but is of a more subtle and ethereal nature, 
According to the Nootkas, the soul has the shape of a tiny man. Its seat is the crown of the head. So long as it stands erect, its owner is hale and hearty, but when from any cause it loses its upright position, he loses his senses. Among the Indian tribes of the lower Fraser River, man is held to have four souls, of which the principal one has the form of a mannequin, while the other three are shadows of it. The Malays conceive the human soul as a little man, mostly invisible, and of the bigness of a thumb, who corresponds exactly in shape, proportion, and even in complexion to the man in whose body he resides. This mannequin is of a thin, unsubstantial nature, though not so impalpable, but that it may cause displacement on entering a physical object, and it can flit quickly from place to place. It is temporarily absent from the body in sleep, trance and disease, and permanently absent after death. So exact is the resemblance of the mannequin to the man, in other words, of the soul to the body, that, as there are fat bodies and thin bodies, so there are fat souls and thin souls. As there are heavy bodies and light bodies, long bodies and short bodies, so there are heavy souls and light souls, long souls and short souls. The people of Nias think that every man, before he is born, is asked how long and how heavy a soul he would like, and a soul of the desired weight or length is measured out to him. The heaviest soul ever given out weighs ten grams. The length of a man's life is proportioned to the length of his soul. Children who die young had short souls. The Fijian conception of the soul as a tiny human being comes clearly out in the customs observed at the death of a chief among the Nakelo tribe. When a chief dies, certain men, who are the hereditary undertakers, call him, as he lies, oiled and ornamented on fine mats, saying, Rise, sir, the chief, and let us be going. The day has come over the land. Then they conduct him to the riverside, where the ghostly ferryman comes to ferry Nakelo ghosts across the stream. As they thus attend the chief on his last journey, they hold their great fans close to the ground to shelter him, because, as one of them explained to a missionary, his soul is only a little child. People in the Punjab, who tattoo themselves, believe that at death the soul, the little entire man or woman, inside the mortal frame, will go to heaven blazoned with the same tattoo patterns which adorned the body in life. Sometimes, however, as we shall see, the human soul is conceived not in human, but in animal form. 2. Absence and Recall of the Soul The soul is commonly supposed to escape by the natural openings of the body, especially the mouth and nostrils. Hence, in Celebes, they sometimes fasten fish-hooks to a sick man's nose, navel, and feet, so that if his soul should try to escape, it may be hooked and held fast. A Turic on the Baram River in Borneo refused to part with some hook-like stones, because they, as it were, hooked his soul to his body, and so prevented the spiritual portion of him from becoming detached from the material. When a sea-diac sorcerer, or medicine man, is initiated, his fingers are supposed to be furnished with fish-hooks. 
with which he will thereafter clutch the human soul in the act of flying away, and restore it to the body of the sufferer. But hooks, it is plain, may be used to catch the souls of enemies, as well as of friends. Acting on this principle, head-hunters in Borneo hang wooden hooks beside the skulls of their slain enemies, in the belief that this helps them on their forays to hook in fresh heads. One of the implements of a hider medicine man is a hollow bone in which he bottles up departing souls, and so restores them to their owners. When any one yawns in their presence, the Hindus always snap their thumbs, believing this will hinder the soul from issuing through the open mouth. The Marquesans used to hold the mouth and nose of a dying man in order to keep him in life by preventing his soul from escaping. The same custom is reported of the New Caledonians, and with the like intention the Bagobos of the Philippine Islands put rings of brass wire on the wrists or ankles of their sick. On the other hand, the Itonamas of South America seal up the eyes, nose and mouth of a dying person in case his ghost should get out and carry off others. And for a similar reason, the people of Nias, who fear the spirits of the recently deceased and identify them with the breath, seek to confine the vagrant soul in its earthly tabernacle by banging up the nose or tying up the jaws of the corpse. Before leaving a corpse, the Wakelbura of Australia used to place hot coals in its ears in order to keep the ghost in the body, until they had got such a good start that he could not overtake them. In southern Celebes, to hinder the escape of a woman's soul in childbed, the nurse ties a band as tightly as possible round the body of the expectant mother. The Minangkabauers of Sumatra observe a similar custom. A skein of thread or a string is sometimes fastened round the wrist or loins of a woman in childbed, so that when her soul seeks to depart in her hour of travail, it may find the egress barred. And lest the soul of a babe should escape and be lost as soon as it is born, the alfours of Celebes, when a birth is about to take place, are careful to close every opening in the house, even the keyhole, and they stop up every chink and cranny in the walls. Also they tie up the mouths of all animals inside and outside the house, for fear one of them might swallow the child's soul. For a similar reason, all persons present in the house, even the mother herself, are obliged to keep their mouths shut the whole time the birth is taking place. When the question was put, why they did not hold their noses also, lest the child's soul should get into one of them, the answer was that breath being exhaled as well as inhaled through the nostrils, the soul would be expelled before it could have time to settle down. Popular expressions in the language of civilised peoples, such as to have one's heart in one's mouth, or the soul on the lips or in the nose, show how natural is the idea that the life or soul may escape by the mouth or nostrils. Often the soul is conceived as a bird ready to take flight. This conception has probably left traces in most languages, and it lingers as a metaphor in poetry. The Malays carry out the conception of the bird soul in a number of odd ways. If the soul is a bird on the wing, it may be attracted by rice, and so either prevented from flying away, or lured back again from its perilous flight. 
Thus in Java, when a child is placed on the ground for the first time, a moment which uncultured people seem to regard as especially dangerous, it is put in a hen coop, and the mother makes a clucking sound as if she were calling hens. And in Sintang, a district of Borneo, when a person, whether man, woman or child, has fallen out of a house or off a tree, and has been brought home, his wife or other kinswoman goes as speedily as possible to the spot where the accident happened, and there strews rice, which has been coloured yellow, while she utters the words, Cluck, cluck, soul! So-and-so is in his house again. Cluck, cluck, soul! Then she gathers up the rice in a basket, carries it to the sufferer, and drops the grains from her hand on his head, saying again, Cluck, cluck, soul! Here the intention clearly is to decoy back the loitering bird soul and replace it in the head of its owner. The soul of a sleeper is supposed to wander away from his body and actually to visit the places, to see the persons and to perform the acts of which he dreams. For example, when an Indian of Brazil or Guyana wakes up from a sound sleep, he is firmly convinced that his soul has really been away hunting, fishing, felling trees, or whatever else he has dreamt of doing, while all the time his body has been lying motionless in his hammock. A whole Bororo village has been thrown into a panic and nearly deserted, because somebody had dreamt that he saw enemies stealthily approaching it. A Makusi Indian, in weak health, who dreamt that his employer had made him haul the canoe up a series of difficult cataracts, bitterly reproached his master next morning for his want of consideration in thus making a poor invalid go out and toil during the night. The Indians of the Grand Chaco are often heard to relate the most incredible stories as things which they have themselves seen and heard. Hence strangers who do not know them intimately say in their haste that these Indians are liars. In point of fact, the Indians are firmly convinced of the truth of what they relate, for these wonderful adventures are simply their dreams, which they do not distinguish from waking realities. Now the absence of the soul in sleep has its dangers, for if from any cause the soul should be permanently detained away from the body, the person thus deprived of the vital principle must die. There is a German belief that the soul escapes from a sleeper's mouth, in the form of a white mouse or a little bird, and that to prevent the return of the bird or animal would be fatal to the sleeper. Hence in Transylvania they say that you should not let a child sleep with its mouth open, or its soul will slip out in the shape of a mouse, and the child will never wake. Many causes may detain the sleeper's soul. Thus his soul may meet the soul of another sleeper, and the two souls may fight. If a guinea negro wakens with sore bones in the morning, he thinks that his soul has been thrashed by another soul in sleep or it may meet the soul of a person just deceased, and be carried off by it. Hence, in the Aru Islands, the inmates of a house will not sleep the night after a death has taken place in it, because the soul of the deceased is supposed to be still in the house, and they fear to meet it in a dream. Again, the soul of the sleeper may be prevented by accident, or by physical force, from returning to his body. When a Dayak dreams of falling into the water, he supposes that this accident has really befallen his spirit, 
and he sends for a wizard, who fishes for the spirit with a hand-net in a basin of water, till he catches it and restores it to its owner. The Santals tell how a man fell asleep, and growing very thirsty, his soul in the form of a lizard left his body, and entered into a pitcher of water to drink. Just then the owner of the pitcher happened to cover it, so the soul could not return to the body, and the man died. While his friends were preparing to burn the body, someone uncovered the pitcher to get water. The lizard thus escaped and returned to the body, which immediately revived. So the man rose up and asked his friends why they were weeping. They told him they thought he was dead and were about to burn his body. He said he had been down a well to get water, but had found it hard to get out and had just returned. So they saw it all. It is a common rule with primitive people not to waken a sleeper because his soul is away and might not have time to get back. So if the man wakened without his soul, he would fall sick. If it is absolutely necessary to rouse a sleeper, it must be done very gradually to allow the soul time to return. A Fijian in Matuku, suddenly wakened from a nap by somebody treading on his foot, has been heard bawling after his soul and imploring it to return. He had just been dreaming that he was far away in Tonga, and great was his alarm on suddenly waking to find his body in Matuku. Death stared him in the face unless his soul could be induced to speed at once across the sea and reanimate its deserted tenement. The man would probably have died of fright if a missionary had not been at hand to allay his terror. Still more dangerous is it in the opinion of a primitive man to move a sleeper or alter his appearance, for if this were done, the soul on its return might not be able to find or recognize its body, and so the person would die. The Minanka Bowers deem it highly improper to blacken or dirty the face of a sleeper, lest the absent soul should shrink from re-entering a body thus disfigured. Patani Malays fancy that if a person's face be painted while he sleeps, the soul which has gone out of him will not recognize him, and he will sleep on till his face is washed. In Bombay it is thought equivalent to murder to change the aspect of a sleeper, as by painting his face in fantastic colours, or giving moustaches to a sleeping woman. For when the soul returns it will not know its own body, and the person will die. But in order that a man's soul should quit his body, it is not necessary that he should be asleep. It may quit him in his waking hours, and then sickness, insanity, or death will be the result. Thus a man of the Wurundjeri tribe in Australia lay at his last gasp because his spirit had departed from him. A medicine man went in pursuit and caught the spirit by the middle, just as it was about to plunge into the sunset glow, which is the light cast by the souls of the dead as they pass in and out of the underworld where the sun goes to rest. Having captured the vagrant spirit, the doctor brought it back under his opossum rug, laid himself down on the dying man, and put the soul back into him, so that after a time he revived. The Karens of Burma are perpetually anxious about their souls, lest these should go roving from their bodies, leaving the owners to die. 
When a man has reason to fear that his soul is about to take this fatal step, a ceremony is performed to retain or recall it, in which the whole family must take part. A meal is prepared, consisting of a cock and hen, a special kind of rice, and a bunch of bananas. Then the head of the family takes the bowl which is used to skim rice, and knocking with it thrice on the top of the house ladder, says, Brrrr! Come back, soul! Do not tarry outside! If it rains, you will be wet! If the sun shines, you will be hot! The gnats will sting you! The leeches will bite you! The tigers will devour you! The thunder will crush you! Brrrr! Come back, soul! Here it will be well with you. You shall want for nothing. Come and eat under the shelter from the wind and the storm. After that the family partakes of the meal, and the ceremony ends with everybody tying his right wrist with a string which has been charmed by a sorcerer. Similarly, the Lolos of southwestern China believe that the soul leaves the body in chronic illness. In that case they read a sort of elaborate litany, calling on the soul by name, and beseeching it to return from the hills, the vales, the rivers, the forests, the fields, or from wherever it may be straying. At the same time, cups of water, wine and rice are set at the door for the refreshment of the weary wandering spirit. When the ceremony is over, they tie a red cord round the arm of the sick man to tether the soul and this cord is worn by him until it decays or drops off. Some of the Congo tribes believe that when a man is ill, his soul has left his body and is wandering at large. The aid of the sorcerer is then called in to capture the vagrant spirit and restore it to the invalid. Generally, the physician declares that he has successfully chased the soul into the branch of a tree, the whole town thereupon turns out and accompanies the doctor to the tree, where the strongest men are deputed to break off the branch in which the soul of the sick man is supposed to be lodged. This they do, and carry the branch back to the town, insinuating by their gestures that the burden is heavy and hard to bear. When the branch has been brought to the sick man's hut, he is placed in an upright position by its side, and the sorcerer performs the enchantments by which the soul is believed to be restored to its owner. Pining, sickness, great fright and death are ascribed by the Bataks of Sumatra to the absence of the soul from the body. At first they try to beckon the wanderer back, and to lure him like a fowl by strewing rice. Then the following form of words is commonly repeated. Come back, O soul, whether thou art lingering in the wood, or on the hills, or in the dale. See, I call thee with a toemba brass, with an egg of the foul Raja Moaliya, with the eleven healing leaves. Detain it not, let it come straight here. Detain it not, neither in the wood, nor on the hill, nor in the dale. That may not be. O oh, come straight home. Once, when a popular traveller was leaving a Kayan village, the mothers, fearing that their children's souls might follow him on his journey, brought him the boards on which they carried their infants, and begged him to pray that the souls of the little ones would return to the familiar boards, and not go away with him into the far country. 
To each board was fastened a looped string for the purpose of tethering the vagrant spirits, and through the loop each baby was made to pass a chubby finger to make sure that its tiny soul would not wander away. In an Indian story, a king conveys his soul into the dead body of a Brahman, and a hunchback conveys his soul into the deserted body of the king. The hunchback is now king, and the king is a Brahman. However, the hunchback is induced to show his skill by transferring his soul to the dead body of a parrot, and the king seizes the opportunity to regain possession of his own body. A tale of the same type, with variations of detail, reappears among the Malays. A king has incautiously transferred his soul to an ape, upon which the vizier adroitly inserts his own soul into the king's body, and so takes possession of the queen and the kingdom, while the true king languishes at court in the outward semblance of an ape. But one day the false king, who played for high stakes, was watching a combat of rams, and it happened that the animal on which he had laid his money fell down dead. All efforts to restore animation proved unavailing, till the false king, with the instinct of a true sportsman, transferred his own soul to the body of the deceased ram, and thus renewed the fray. The real king, in the body of the ape, saw his chance, and with great presence of mind darted back into his own body, which the vizier had rashly vacated. So he came to his own again, and the usurper in the ram's body met with the fate he richly deserved. Similarly, the Greeks told how the soul of Hermotimus of Cladzomenae used to quit his body and roam far and wide, bringing back intelligence of what he had seen on his rambles to his friends at home, until one day, when his spirit was abroad, his enemies contrived to seize his deserted body and committed it to the flames. The departure of the soul is not always voluntary. It may be extracted from the body against its will by ghosts, demons, or sorcerers. Hence, when a funeral is passing the house, the Karens tie the children with a special kind of string to a particular part of the house, lest the souls of the children should leave their bodies and go into the corpse which is passing. The children are kept tied in this way until the corpse is out of sight and after the corpse has been laid in the grave, but before the earth has been shovelled in, the mourners and friends range themselves round the grave, each with a bamboo split lengthwise in one hand, and a little stick in the other. Each man thrusts his bamboo into the grave, and drawing the stick along the groove of the bamboo, points out to his soul that in this way it may easily climb up out of the tomb. While the earth is being shovelled in, the bamboos are kept out of the way, lest the souls should be in them, and so should be inadvertently buried with the earth as it is being thrown into the grave. And when the people leave the spot, they carry away the bamboos, begging their souls to come with them. Further, on returning from the grave, each Karen provides himself with three little hooks, made of branches of trees, and calling his spirit to follow him, at short intervals, as he returns, he makes a motion as if hooking it, and then thrusts the hook into the ground. This is done to prevent the soul of the living from staying behind with the soul of the dead. When the Karobataks have buried somebody, and are filling in the grave, a sorceress runs about beating the air with a stick. 
This she does in order to drive away the souls of the survivors. For if one of these souls happened to slip into the grave and to be covered up with earth, its owner would die. In Uea, one of the loyalty islands, the souls of the dead seem to have been credited with the power of stealing the souls of the living. For when a man was sick, the soul doctor would go with a large troop of men and women to the graveyard. Here the men played on flutes, and the women whistled softly to lure the soul home. After this had gone on for some time, they formed in procession and moved homewards, the flutes playing and the women whistling all the way, while they led back the wandering soul and drove it gently along with open palms. On entering the patient's dwelling, they commanded the soul in a loud voice to enter his body. Often the abduction of a man's soul is set down to demons. Thus fits and convulsions are generally ascribed by the Chinese to the agency of certain mischievous spirits who love to draw men's souls out of their bodies. At Amoy, the spirits who serve babies and children in this way rejoice in the high-sounding titles of celestial agencies bestriding galloping horses and literary graduates residing halfway up in the sky. When an infant is writhing in convulsions, the frightened mother hastens to the roof of the house and waving about a bamboo pole to which one of the child's garments is attached, cries out several times, My child, so-and-so, come back, return home. Meantime, another inmate of the house bangs away at a gong in the hope of attracting the attention of the strayed soul, which is supposed to recognize the familiar garment and to slip into it. The garment containing the soul is then placed on or beside the child, and if the child does not die, recovery is sure to follow, sooner or later. Similarly, some Indians catch a man's lost soul in his boots, and restore it to his body by putting his feet into them. In the Malakas, when a man is unwell, it is thought that some devil has carried away his soul to the tree, mountain or hill, where he, the devil, resides. A sorcerer, having pointed out the devil's abode, the friends of the patient carry thither cooked rice, fruit, fish, raw eggs, a hen, a chicken, a silken robe, gold armlets, and so forth. Having set out the food in order, they pray, saying, We come to offer you, O devil, this offering of food, clothes, gold, and so on. Take it and release the soul of the patient for whom we pray. Let it return to his body, and he who now is sick shall be made whole. Then they eat a little, and let the hen loose as a ransom for the soul of the patient. Also they put down the raw eggs. But the silken robe, the gold, and the armlets they take home with them. As soon as they are come to the house, they place a flat bowl, containing the offerings which have been brought back, at the sick man's head, and say to him, now is your soul released, and you shall fare well, and live to grey hairs on the earth. Demons are especially feared by persons who have just entered a new house. Hence, at a housewarming among the Alfours of Minahasa in Celebes, the priest performs a ceremony for the purpose of restoring their souls to the inmates. He hangs up a bag at the place of sacrifice, and then goes through a list of the gods. There are so many of them that this takes him the whole night through without stopping. In the morning 
he offers the gods an egg and some rice. By this time the souls of the household are supposed to be gathered in the bag, so the priest takes the bag, and holding it on the head of the master of the house, says, Here you have your soul. Go, soul, to-morrow, away again. He then does the same, saying the same words, to the housewife and all the other members of the family. Amongst the same Alfours, one way of recovering a sick man's soul is to let down a bowl by a belt out of a window, and fish for the soul till it is caught in the bowl and hauled up. And among the same people, when a priest is bringing back a sick man's soul, which he has caught in a cloth, he is preceded by a girl holding the large leaf of a certain palm over his head as an umbrella, to keep him and the soul from getting wet, in case it should rain. And he is followed by a man brandishing a sword, to deter other souls from any attempt at rescuing the captured spirit. Sometimes the lost soul is brought back in a visible shape. The Salish, or flathead Indians of Oregon, believe that a man's soul may be separated for a time from his body without causing death, and without the man being aware of its loss. It is necessary, however, that the lost soul should be soon found and restored to its owner, or he will die. The name of the man who has lost his soul is revealed in a dream to the medicine man, who hastens to inform the sufferer of his loss. Generally, a number of men have sustained a like loss at the same time. All their names are revealed to the medicine man, and all employ him to recover their souls. The whole night long these soulless men go about the village from lodge to lodge, dancing and singing. Towards daybreak they go into a separate lodge, which is closed up so as to be totally dark. A small hole is then made in the roof, through which the medicine man, with a bunch of feathers, brushes in the souls, in the shape of bits of bone and the like which he receives on a piece of matting. A fire is next kindled, by the light of which the medicine-man sorts out the souls. First he puts aside the souls of dead people, of which there are usually several, for if he were to give the soul of a dead person to a living man, the man would die instantly. Next he picks out the souls of all the persons present and making them all to sit down before him, he takes the soul of each, in the shape of a splinter of bone, wood, or shell, and placing it on the owner's head, pats it in with many prayers and contortions, till it descends into the heart, and so resumes its proper place. Again, souls may be extracted from their bodies, or detained on their wanderings, not only by ghosts and demons, but also by men, especially by sorcerers. In Fiji, if a criminal refuses to confess, the chief sent for a scarf with which to catch away the soul of the rogue. At the sight, or even at the mention of the scarf, the culprit generally made a clean breast, for if he did not, the scarf would be waved over his head till his soul was caught in it, when it would be carefully folded up and nailed to the end of a chief's canoe, and for want of his soul the criminal would pine and die. The sorcerers of Danger Island used to set snares for souls. The snares were made of stout sinet, about fifteen to thirty feet long, with loops on either side of different sizes, to suit the different sizes of souls. For fat souls there were large loops, for thin souls there were small ones. 
When a man was sick, against whom the sorcerers had a grudge, they set up these soul-snares near his house, and watched for the flight of his soul. If, in the shape of a bird or an insect, it was caught in the snare, the man would infallibly die. In some parts of West Africa, indeed, wizards are continually setting traps to catch souls that wander from their bodies in sleep, and when they have caught one, they tie it up over the fire, and as it shrivels in the heat, the owner sickens. This is done, not out of any grudge towards the sufferer, but purely as a matter of business. The wizard does not care whose soul he has captured, and will readily restore it to its owner, if only he is paid for doing so. Some sorcerers keep regular asylums for strayed souls, and anybody who has lost or mislaid his soul can always have another one from the asylum on payment of the usual fee. No blame whatever attaches to men who keep these private asylums or set traps for passing souls. It is their profession, and in the exercise of it they are actuated by no harsh or unkindly feelings. But there are also wretches who, from pure spite, or from the sake of lucre, set and bait traps for the deliberate purpose of catching the soul of a particular man. And in the bottom of the pot, hidden by the bait, are knives and sharp hooks, which tear and rend the poor soul, either killing it outright, or mauling it, so as to impair the health of its owner, when it succeeds in escaping and returning to him. Miss Kingsley knew a crewman who became very anxious about his soul, because for several nights he had smelt in his dreams the savoury smell of smoked crawfish, seasoned with red pepper. Clearly some ill-wisher had set a trap baited with this dainty for his dream-soul, intending to do him grievous bodily, or rather spiritual, harm, and for the next few nights great pains were taken to keep his soul from straying abroad in his sleep. In the sweltering heat of the tropical night he lay sweating and snorting under a blanket, his nose and mouth tied up with a handkerchief to prevent the escape of his precious soul. In Hawaii there were sorcerers who caught souls of living people, shut them up in calabashes, and gave them to people to eat. By squeezing a captured soul in their hands, they discovered the place where people had been secretly buried. Nowhere, perhaps, is the art of abducting human souls more carefully cultivated or carried to higher perfection than in the Malay Peninsula. Here the methods by which the wizard works his will are various, and so too are his motives. Sometimes he desires to destroy an enemy, sometimes to win the love of a cold or bashful beauty. Thus, to take an instance of the latter sort of charm, the following are the directions given for securing the soul of one whom you wish to render distraught. When the moon, just risen, looks red above the eastern horizon, go out, and standing in the moonlight, with the big toe of your right foot on the big toe of your left, make a speaking trumpet of your right hand, and recite through it the following words. O M, I loose my shaft, I loose it, and the moon clouds over. I loose it, and the sun is extinguished. I loose it, and the stars burn dim. But it is not the sun, moon, and stars that I shoot at. It is the stalk of the heart of that child of the congregation, so-and-so. 
cluck, cluck, soul of so-and-so, come and walk with me, come and sit with me, come and sleep and share my pillow, cluck, cluck, soul. Repeat this thrice, and after every repetition, blow through your hollow fist, or you may catch the soul in your turban thus. Go out on the first night of the full moon, and the two succeeding nights, sit down on an ant hill facing the moon, burn incense, and recite the following incantation. I bring you beetle leaf to chew, dab the line on to it, prince ferocious, for somebody, prince distraction's daughter to chew. Somebody at sunrise be distraught for love of me. Somebody at sunset be distraught for love of me. As you remember your parents, remember me. As you remember your house and house ladder, remember me. When thunder rumbles, remember me. When wind whistles, remember me. When the heavens rain, remember me. When the cocks crow, remember me. When the dial bird tells its tales, remember me. When you look up at the sun, remember me. When you look up at the moon, remember me. For in that self-same moon, I am there. Cluck, cluck, soul of somebody, come hither to me. I do not mean to let you have my soul. Let your soul come hither to mine. Now wave the end of your turban towards the moon seven times each night. Go home and put it under your pillow, and if you want to wear it in the daytime, burn incense and say, It is not a turban that I carry in my girdle, but the soul of somebody. The Indians of the Nass River in British Columbia are impressed with the belief that a physician may swallow his patient's soul by mistake. A doctor who is believed to have done so is made by the other members of the faculty to stand over the patient while one of them thrusts his fingers down the doctor's throat, another kneads him in the stomach with his knuckles, and a third slaps him on the back. If the soul is not in him after all, and if the same process has been repeated upon all the medical men without success, it is concluded that the soul must be in the head doctor's box. A party of doctors, therefore, waits upon him at his house, and requests him to produce his box. When he has done so, and arranged its contents on a new mat, they take the votary of Esculapius, and hold him up by the heels, with his head in a hole in the floor. In this position they wash his head, and any water remaining from the ablution is taken and poured upon the sick man's head. No doubt the lost soul is in the water. 3. The soul as a shadow and a reflection. But the spiritual dangers I have enumerated are not the only ones which beset the savage. Often he regards his shadow or reflection as his soul, or at all events as a vital part of himself, and as such it is necessarily a source of danger to him. For if it is trampled upon, struck or stabbed, he will feel the injury as if it were done to his person, and if it is detached from him entirely, as he believes that it may be, he will die. In the island of Wetar there are magicians who can make a man ill by stabbing his shadow with a pike or hacking it with a sword. After Sankara had destroyed the Buddhists in India, it is said that he journeyed to Nepal, where he had some difference of opinion with the Grand Lama. To prove his supernatural powers, he soared into the air, 
but as he mounted up, the Grand Lama, perceiving his shadow swaying and wavering on the ground, struck his knife into it, and down fell Sankara, and broke his neck. In the Banks Islands there are some stones of a remarkably long shape, which go by the name of eating ghosts, because certain powerful and dangerous ghosts are believed to lodge in them. If a man's shadow falls on one of these stones, the ghost will draw his soul out from him, so that he will die. Such stones, therefore, are set in a house to guard it, and a messenger sent to a house by the absent owner will call out the name of the sender, lest the watchful ghost in the stone should fancy that he came with evil intent, and should do him a mischief. At a funeral in China, when the lid is about to be placed on the coffin, most of the bystanders, with the exception of the nearest kin, retire a few steps, or even retreat to another room, for a person's health is believed to be endangered by allowing his shadow to be enclosed in a coffin. And when the coffin is about to be lowered into the grave, most of the spectators recoil to a little distance, lest their shadows should fall into the grave, and harm should thus be done to their persons. The geomancer and his assistants stand on the side of the grave, which is turned away from the sun, and the grave-diggers and coffin-bearers attach their shadows firmly to their persons, by tying a strip of cloth tightly round their waists. Nor is it human beings alone who are thus liable to be injured by means of their shadows. Animals are to some extent in the same predicament. A small snail, which frequents the neighbourhood of the limestone hills in Perak, is believed to suck the blood of cattle through their shadows. Hence the beasts grow lean, and sometimes die from loss of blood. The ancients supposed that in Arabia, if a hyena trod on a man's shadow, it deprived him of the power of speech and motion, and that if a dog, standing on a roof in the moonlight, cast a shadow on the ground, and a hyena trod on it, the dog would fall down as if dragged with a rope. Clearly, in these cases, the shadow, if not equivalent to the soul, is at least regarded as a living part of the man or the animal, so that injury done to the shadow is felt by the person or animal as if it were done to his body. Conversely, if the shadow is a vital part of a man or an animal, it may, under certain circumstances, be as hazardous to be touched by it as it would be to come into contact with the person or animal. Hence the savage makes it a rule to shun the shadow of certain persons whom, for various reasons, he regards as sources of dangerous influence. Amongst the dangerous classes he commonly ranks mourners and women in general, but especially his mother-in-law. The Shuswap Indians think that the shadow of a mourner falling upon a person would make him sick. Amongst the Kurnai of Victoria, novices at the initiation were cautioned not to let a woman's shadow fall across them, as this would make them thin, lazy, and stupid. An Australian native is said to have once nearly died of fright, because the shadow of his mother-in-law fell on his legs as he lay asleep under a tree. The awe and dread with which the untutored savage contemplates his mother-in-law are amongst the most familiar facts of anthropology. In the Yuin tribes of New South Wales, the rules which forbade a man to hold any communication with his wife's mother was very strict. He might not look at her, or even in her direction. 
it was a ground of divorce if his shadow happened to fall on his mother-in-law. In that case he had to leave his wife, and she returned to her parents. In New Britain the native imagination fails to conceive the extent and nature of the calamities which would result from a man's accidentally speaking to his wife's mother. Suicide, or one or both, would probably be the only cause open to them. The most solemn form of oath a new Briton can take is, Sir, if I am not telling the truth, I hope I may shake hands with my mother-in-law. Where the shadow is regarded as so intimately bound up with the life of the man that its loss entails debility or death, it is natural to expect that its diminution should be regarded with solicitude and apprehension, as betokening a corresponding decrease in the vital energy of its owner. In Amboina and Uliase, two islands near the equator, where necessarily there is little or no shadow cast at noon, the people make it a rule not to go out of the house at midday, because they fancy that by doing so a man may lose the shadow of his soul. The Mangayans tell of a mighty warrior, Tukaitawa, whose strength waxed and waned with the length of his shadow. In the morning, when his shadow fell longest, his strength was greatest. But as the shadow shortened towards noon, his strength ebbed with it, till exactly at noon it reached its lowest point. Then, as the shadow stretched out in the afternoon, his strength returned. A certain hero discovered the secret of Tukaitawa's strength, and slew him at noon. The savage Besisis of the Malay Peninsula fear to bury their dead at noon, because they fancy that the shortness of their shadows at that hour would sympathetically shorten their own lives. Nowhere, perhaps, does the equivalence of the shadow to the life or soul come out more clearly than in some customs practised to this day in southeastern Europe. In modern Greece, when the foundation of a new building is being laid, it is the custom to kill a cock, a ram, or a lamb, and to let its blood flow on the foundation stone, under which the animal is afterwards buried. The object of the sacrifice is to give strength and stability to the building. But sometimes, instead of killing an animal, the builder entices a man to the foundation stone, secretly measures his body, or a part of it, or his shadow, and buries the measure under the foundation stone, or he lays the foundation stone upon the man's shadow. It is believed that the man will die within the year. The Romanians of Transylvania think that he whose shadow is thus immured will die within forty days. So persons passing by a building, which is in the course of erection, may hear a warning cry, Beware, lest they take thy shadow. Not long ago there were still shadow traders, whose business it was to provide architects with the shadows necessary for securing their walls. In these cases the measure of the shadow is looked on as equivalent to the shadow of itself, and to bury it is to bury the life or soul of the man, who, deprived of it, must die. Thus the custom is a substitute for the old practice of immuring a living person in the walls, or crushing him under the foundation stone of a new building, in order to give strength and durability to the structure, or, more definitely, in order that the angry ghost may haunt the place and guard it against the intrusion of enemies. 
As some peoples believe a man's soul to be in his shadow, so other, or the same, peoples believe it to be in his reflection in water or a mirror. Thus the Andamanese do not regard their shadows, but their reflections in any mirror, as their souls. When the Motumotu of New Guinea first saw their likenesses in a looking-glass, they thought that their reflections were their souls. In New Caledonia the old men are of opinion that a person's reflection in water or a mirror is his soul, but the younger men, taught by the Catholic priests, maintain that it is a reflection and nothing more, just like the reflection of palm-trees in the water. The reflection soul, being external to the man, is exposed to much the same dangers as the shadow soul. The Zulus will not look into a dark pool because they think there is a beast in it which will take away their reflections, so that they die. The Basutos say that crocodiles have the power of thus killing a man by dragging his reflection under water. When one of them dies suddenly, and from no apparent cause, his relatives will allege that a crocodile must have taken his shadow some time when he crossed a stream. In Saddle Island, Melanesia, there is a pool, into which, if any one looks, he dies. The malignant spirit takes hold of his life by means of his reflection on the water. We can now understand why it was a maxim both in ancient India and ancient Greece not to look at one's reflection in water, and why the Greeks regarded it as an omen of death if a man dreamt of seeing himself so reflected. They feared that the water spirits would drag the person's reflection or soul under water, leaving him soulless to perish. This was probably the origin of the classical story of the beautiful Narcissus, who languished and died through seeing his reflection in the water. Further, we can now explain the widespread custom of covering up mirrors or turning them to the wall after a death has taken place in the house. It is feared that the soul, projected out of the person in the shape of his reflection in the mirror, may be carried off by the ghost of the departed which is commonly supposed to linger about the house till burial. The custom is thus exactly parallel to the Aru custom of not sleeping in a house after a death, for fear that the soul, projected out of the body in a dream, may meet the ghost and be carried off by it. The reason why sick people should not see themselves in a mirror, and why the mirror in a sick room is therefore covered up, is also plain. In time of sickness, when the soul might take flight so easily, it is particularly dangerous to project it out of the body by means of the reflection in a mirror. The rule is therefore precisely parallel to the rule observed by some peoples of not allowing sick people to sleep, for in sleep the soul is projected out of the body, and there is always a risk that it may not return. As with shadows and reflections, so with portraits. They are often believed to contain the soul of the person portrayed. People who hold this belief are naturally loath to have their likenesses taken, for if the portrait is the soul, or at least a vital part of the person portrayed, whoever possesses the portrait will be able to exercise a fatal influence over the original of it. Thus the Eskimos of Bering Strait believe that persons dealing in witchcraft have the power of stealing a person's shade, so that without it he will pine away and die. 
Once, at a village on the lower Yukon River, an explorer had set up his camera to get a picture of the people as they were moving about among their houses. While he was focusing the instrument, the headman of the village came up and insisted on peeping under the cloth. Being allowed to do so, he gazed intently for a minute at the moving figures on the ground glass, then suddenly withdrew his head and bawled at the top of his voice to the people, "'He has all of your shades in this box!' A panic ensued among the group, and in an instant they disappeared helter-skelter into their houses. The Tepehuanes of Mexico stood in mortal terror of the camera, and five days' persuasion was necessary to induce them to pose for it. When at last they consented, they looked like criminals about to be executed. They believed that by photographing people, the artist could carry off their souls and devour them at his leisure moments. They said that, when the pictures reached his country, they would die or some other evil would befall them. When Dr. Kata and some companions were exploring the Barra country on the west coast of Madagascar, the people suddenly became hostile. The day before, the travellers, not without difficulty, had photographed the royal family, and now found themselves accused of taking the souls of the natives for the purpose of selling them when they returned to France. Denial was vain. In compliance with the custom of the country, they were obliged to catch the souls, which were then put into a basket, and ordered by Dr. Kata to return to their respective owners. Some villagers in Sikkim betrayed a lively horror and hid away whenever the lens of a camera, or the evil eye of the box, as they called it, was turned on them. They thought it took away their souls with their pictures, and so put it in the power of the owner of the pictures to cast spells on them, and they alleged that a photograph of the scenery blighted the landscape. Until the reign of the late king of Siam, no Siamese coins were ever stamped with the image of the king, for at that time there was a strong prejudice against the making of portraits in any medium. Europeans who travel into the jungle have, even at the present time, only to point a camera at a crowd to procure its instant dispersion. When a copy of the face of a person is made and taken away from him, a portion of his life goes with the picture. Unless the sovereign had been blessed with the years of a Methuselah, he could scarcely have permitted his life to be distributed in small pieces together with the coins of the realm. Beliefs of the same sort still linger in various parts of Europe. Not many years ago some old women in the Greek island of Carpathus were very angry at having their likenesses drawn, thinking that in consequence they would pine and die. There are persons in the west of Scotland who refuse to have their likenesses taken, lest it prove unlucky, and give as instances the cases of several of their friends who never had a day's health after being photographed. End of chapter 18